Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and I want to give a shout-out to all of the families out there who had their family reunions canceled this year. I was one of those people in the middle of it, and I, have, I am deep, deep into tons of citations, what have you, back in history for our family tree. And I have some photos, which are great. What would be even better is if I had some autobiographies. And so where our ancestors may have missed out in the past, we have an expert today who is a guided autobiography facilitator. So we're going to talk about uh, developing an autobiography so that our family members in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years past today, which is hard to imagine, they actually have more than just our beautiful elementary school photo. <laughs> and so, our author is Color Your Life Happy, Create Your Unique Path, and Claim the Joy You Deserve. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guided autobiography facilitator, Dr. Flora Brown. Welcome to the podcast, Flora. Thank you, Hansa. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, yes, indeed. And when we first got together, I do want to cover this part because it's Dr. Flora Morris Brown. And since <laughs> I, went, I graduated from Clark Atlanta twice, and oh. we had such an affinity with uh, the Atlanta University Center. So when I saw Morris mm-hmm. Brown, I was like, oh, my goodness, we have lineage here. I'm in the, I'm in the middle of doing this. And I, and so you, you, you kind of let the air out of my balloon a little bit. You said you weren't oh, part of that family. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my second part of that, my second part of that was um, part of the difficulty in in at least my family tree, or at least others that I've spoken with, is the mm-hmm. women. Because in the United States, once a woman gets married, as a generalization, she takes the husband's name. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when, we, yes. when, when you're doing your searches or when I'm doing my searches, it's like if, she, if all we have is her married name, it's difficult to get the, the maiden name. So is Morris mm-hmm. a maiden name, and it's easier to find you in the Brown family tree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Morris is my uh, maiden name. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that makes um, finding people difficult if you don't know both names. Uh, some people hyphenate them, but... I find that hyphenating can be troublesome because some people will file it under M, some people will file it under B. So I don't hyphenate. I just let Brown be my last name. And I, but I use the middle name Morris because that's my mother's, you know, married name. And a lot of people who know me from, you know, the old days, that's the name they identify with. So just make it easy for everyone. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So for everybody out there, you know what? And the other thing I found is when you start dealing with the mother's maiden name and then the father's family name, it really <laughs> shows how we're all related. It seems like <laughs> at some point, I think we need to bring back the uh, blood drop when you get married because you don't want to marry your distant cousin. <laughs> I know. Isn't that kind of scary? Then that could very, very well happen, couldn't it? Yes. 
Yes, and let's hope it doesn't happen. I hope this is just a theory conversation we're having. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want anybody to go back and like, oh, my God, I only thought this happened in this one state that is the stereotype. <laughs> it can happen all right. over now. Right. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, and that's part of the benefit of having the life source, you know, having access to your family's details because mm-hmm. that can help prevent that. But it, it isn't always available for people of color, especially those of us who are descendants of slaves, because um, the written record wasn't available. And, you know, in some cases, people, of course, couldn't write and read at first. But even when they began to, it was not always safe to write things down, number one. And number two, once people got out of that um horrible situation, and it's true around the, the globe, wherever if you talk to um, uh, Japanese who were interred in uh, internment camps here in California, if you talk to um, Jewish people whose you know, families were in the Holocaust, some of those family members do not want to talk about the horrible past. They want to forget it, push it down, push it back. But we need that history we need to know that uh, those of us who come after but it's not so easy coaxing it out of people it's easier now than it used to be yes absolutely and a a shout out to my favorite man in the whole world i got to give a shout out to clarence caper senior and because of just like you said i wanted to respect my grandfather's wishes and wait until he passed because when <laughs> I was talking to him and grandma, when, you know, when you come out of in school and you're excited, everybody's talking about family tree and what have you. <laughs> and they were mm-hmm. like, we don't want to dredge any of that stuff up. That's so right. I, That's right. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I think the other thing, I think, like you said, it's, it's really important because you can kind of piece things together. And one thing that we're seeing in 2020 is so much is coming to the forefront that was hidden. And yes. one, one oh argument goodness. that we've had when you're talking about people of color, specifically uh, uh, descendants of slaves, uh, a lot of those stories, either you didn't want to share them or uh, for, fe- for fears or whatever reason, but if you didn't share them, then someone else can kind of commandeer your story. And you're like, that didn't exactly. happen. That exactly. wasn't true. So <laughs> I think... I don't know if I'm doing your work for you, but did you come across some of these same conclusions to become an autobiography facilitator? Did I come across some of these? You mean, are these, did these lead up to me wanting to do this work? Right. The various people. Okay. In my case, I started, I wasn't interested in helping people with their autobiographies at first. I was a writer myself, a teacher. When I retired from teaching, I was gung-ho to try all kinds of adventures, first uh, traveling. But then uh, after I traveled uh, for a couple of countries, I decided to write my book. Well, once you write a book on anything, <laughs> people around you want you to help them. They're, they're mystified. You know, to many people, an author is this, um, you know, wonderful person that has this mysterious skill, and they start asking you about writing books. So I started off by helping 
aspiring authors to write their stories. They, they did not have to be life stories. But what happened along the way, for whatever reason, I started to not feel as fulfilled helping aspiring authors because that's one path that's very different from writing your own memoir for your family. So along the way, I'm always researching and reading almost everything. If a piece of paper blows down the street, I'm reading it to see what's on that paper. Uh, so I read across a class in one of the community service catalogs that said um, autobiography or guided autobiography class. And I was like, what is this? Why haven't I heard of this before? Because I was an English major and I taught English and reading and critical thinking. I helped authors uh, get into, get their books published, but I hadn't heard of this. So when I investigated it, I fell in love with it because it was created for the ordinary person who wants to write his or her life story uh, uh, primarily about yourself and your family and, you know, from your perspective. But um, I fell in love with it because I thought these are people who come forth, they want to write their stories, They're, it's very personal to them for whatever, usually some triggering event has happened, you know, that's made them want to at this point. So I got interested and I signed up for the training and um, completed my training. And once I did that, I was um, hooked on bringing this skill to the ordinary person who doesn't believe that they can write. Uh, some people kind of keep it a secret that they want to write their life stories because they're kind of hesitant that their lives might be boring or that no one will want to read them. But um, I love giving them the courage and helping them to see that writing your life story is more than just about, you know, putting words on paper. It's more than just journaling. It's actually a, a legacy you're leaving behind for your children, your, your ancestors, people you will never meet in the future. And uh, if you don't share some of those feelings, values, thoughts, everyday life, what was it like, what were your ups and downs, then we lose a lot of um, rich and valuable information that would help the rest of us live our lives. <laughs> so I fell in love with it. Um, I want to point out one of the big um, flaws with the, with the term autobiography, however, because the um, professor, this was created by a professor back in the 70s, called it guided autobiography. But it, what we end up writing in these classes is really closer to a memoir than it is an autobiography. Because an autobiography is uh, typically a chronicling of your life events from birth to as, or as early as possible, you know, where you were born, all those statistical things, all the way to wherever you are at the time you're writing it. So an autobiography tends to be a more um, uh, factual or are, yeah, factual historical documents. And that's why many of the quote unquote great men and women throughout history, when they got to a certain age, they would write their autobiographies, but we would expect them to have some factual content. So if you're reading about um, Thomas Jefferson, 
uh, you expect that if he cites certain dates that he was doing this, certain dates he was doing that, what was going on with wars and other kinds of things, you kind of trust it as a, a historical record. With your memoir, the focus is more on how you, the author, felt about what was going on in your life. And you're telling it from your perspective. So believe me, your relatives and people that you grew up with and around are not going to necessarily agree on everything you share in a memoir because it's your perspective. So, you know, if you have five children in a family and each one wrote um, a memoir, theirs will be different because whatever happens in that family, good or bad, is viewed through the lens of the person writing the story. <laughs> and if you don't write your story, you just pointed out earlier, if you don't write your story, then that means that someone else gets to write your story if they choose to or to tell about you. And you lose the power and the ownership of your story. And think about it. How do we know about what happens in, you know, pavement dates? Or what, how do we know what happens in, um, you know, China with the building of the Great Wall? We know these things because someone wrote it down in whatever language or whatever form of communication they had. They wrote it and they left clues and specific details and dates. And that's how we know about history. How would we know about anything that has transpired if someone didn't make the effort to write it down? But the, the common, ordinary, everyday person, and when I say common, ordinary, I'm not putting people down. I'm just saying that isn't their career, and they may not feel that skilled in writing. But no matter what, their stories are precious because that, that's a, an accounting of someone who had feelings, they had fears, they overcame things, they, they contributed to the world. And we need to know about that, especially the families. I was playing with you a little bit before we started recording. And as you mentioned, uh, you, your memoir is talking about what's going on in your life. And in 2020, I think it's even more pertinent because outside of the U.S., it seems like everyone's on one accord. But each state <laughs> here in the United States is different. So if you're not oh writing goodness. it down... You don't know. I'm here in Georgia. I don't know if what's true to what's happening here is your same truth, right? It's like we're our own different countries. So it seems like even more so we need a memoir for 2020 in America. Well, you know, you, you just led me right into <laughs> what I did this year when I offered uh, my first online version of my uh, life story workshop, which I call uh, the, the name I typically call it is write your life story two pages at a time, because that's the technique that this professor created back in the seventies to get his students. He was a um, gerontology professor. He was the founder of the gerontology program at USC back in the seventies. He was the first dean, founding dean. And he was, you know, always teaching courses about aging and gerontology and these things. And he discovered one summer, just teaching a summer course, that when he got ready to discuss whatever the students were supposed to have read, 
uh, that nobody had done their homework, maybe because it was summertime, and maybe because it was being held in Hawaii <laughs> that year. But um, he said, okay, hold it. He realized that whatever he had assigned did not resonate with the students. They didn't take it seriously. So he came up with this off the top of his head, I suppose. He said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Forget about that assignment. Just go home and write two pages about your life and bring them with you next class meeting, and we'll just share those with each other. Every student, everyone got so excited, and he observed how much it moved the students to not just read their life stories, but to see the reaction of the other students in the class to their stories. Because whatever secret you're holding, whatever you're ashamed of, whatever you think is this horrible thing in your family or about yourself, somebody else has something that can match it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Everybody yeah. has something that they think is they'd rather keep to themselves for whatever reason. Um, so those uh, that that was how this method started. But this year, I was set to offer my first online version before COVID-19 came along, because last year and year before, I'd been searching for a platform where I could um, offer my have my materials available for the students to get in advance, and then also have a place we could meet online together in a classroom-type setting. And I had taught online courses at the university, and I'm sorry, not the university, the community college where I retired. But the academic um, technology is different, you know, from what you can get as an ordinary person or an entrepreneur. So I searched for a couple of years, and I decided I was going to offer it on Zoom before everybody else, everybody knows what Zoom is now. And so this year I was all set, right? And uh, my course was going to have the same name, Write Your Life Story, except I changed the ending to In Six Weeks because it helps people to kind of get an idea of how much time they're committing to. But just as I was making my plans, the uh, COVID-19 came along. And uh, that was around, well, we started hearing about it in December of last year or January. So then by February, it started to become apparent that this was not just a passing thing that was going to go away fast, no matter what you heard <laughs> from other people. It was not going to disappear. So I began to think about my course, and I began to wonder, should I even offer this course now? People are so distracted. It's, I don't know about in your area, but here, they're, oh, my goodness, you know, this frenzy or going to the grocery store and buying toilet tissue and people just um, stocking up and it was just a, a frenzy. So I thought, I, I don't know if this is a good time to offer my course, but I had been planning it and waiting to get everything in place. So I thought, no, this is a perfect time for the very reason you just alluded to. I thought, you know, when you are afraid, and you are stressed and you're upset and uncertain and all of those things that were going on with us, there's some kind of power that is within you that you can either use for good or you can go and hide, you know, under your bed until everything's over. 
<laughs> so I thought, I'm going to still offer my course, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit because there was no way we were going to have a course where there wasn't going to be the opportunity for them to share about COVID-19. So I changed the name of it. I tweaked the name of it, and I called it um, Use the Secret Power of Scary Times to Write Your Life Story in Six Weeks. So I added to the front of it the idea that, yes, we're in, I call them scary times. Some people call them uncertain times, all kind of names. But the point is that within this course, then, I created a journal that, uh, I gave them prompts that they could use, and the journal was optional. They didn't have to turn that in to me, but it gave them a structure, a framework to do exactly what you said earlier. Share what is going on. What are your feelings? What's happening in your neighborhood, in your area, your city, your part of the world? And because if we don't write this down, we will forget the details, and the details are the most important part. You know, you can relate to how you, you know, went to Costco to buy your usual groceries and the line was wrapped around the store and, you know, how you felt and what was going on. So those details are extremely important. And so I gave them an opportunity to journal, but the course already has structure because each week we write on a different theme and we do activities that lead up to that to help them jog their memories and so forth. And it's a wonderful um, way for people to get their stories done because there are a number of programs out where you can write your story or write one week at a time, send a lesson in, you know, kind of like the old correspondence courses just to be sort of kind of. And, um, but this one is different because when we come to class, you read your story that you wrote that week and we say two, we say two pages you can write as many pages as you want. The problem is in order to get everybody's story read, you need to keep it short. So we can't hear, you know, all 100 pages you wrote, whatever. We, we want about the first two pages. And when you finish, everyone who's listening shares their reaction to your story. Mm-hmm. And this is the magic of this course. Because I have seen, I've been teaching this for a couple of years and, you know, face-to-face. I've taught it in libraries, private homes, different places. Would you see how people react to your story? Mm-hmm. It's something, it just is so gratifying. Because you can imagine people are hesitant to share, you know, their story at first. Mm-hmm. But when they see that everyone in the class is on the same uh path with them wanting to share and to be open about and truthful, but they also have to develop, you know, this confidence. Uh, we talk about confidentiality. Anything that's shared in, in the class is not to be shared outside. And um, this is the magic of it because people come away feeling so empowered that now they have a way to get their stories written, that they have some guidance, but they also have some um group interaction and support. You know, there's nothing like accountability and nothing like support from like-minded people. So that's um, how I got. So when you say uh, guided autobiography, I, you know, I could, I don't have that uh, title in my course title, 
But that is the name of the program, the certificate that I trained under to learn this technique. But before I got into that, I had been teaching for 40 years English and reading and many other things. So I, of course, incorporate, you know, other things that I use in my teaching. But, yeah, it's um, whoever tells the story is the one that rules the game. So if you don't share your life story, all kinds of strange things. It's, it's unfortunate because there's a, a quote, I think it's an African quote, and I, I um, don't have it right in front of me, about every time an old person dies, it's like a library burning down. Mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. they are taking, and it doesn't have to be a, an old person. It can be any age person who has lived, you know, a number of years, there's, there are things that they carry with them that perhaps would be wonderful to um, know about in the family, but also outsiders, people who are not in your family, uh, appreciate you. And, you know, I looked up yesterday about the um, New York Times bestseller list. I was just curious because somebody mentioned it in something I was reading. And I was looking it up to see, okay, how would they determine that? list and da 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 but in the process the top selling books are memoirs autobiographies would you believe that's what people love to read <laughs> about other people's lives and um, now my students who complete my course do not typically publish their their stories um, that's up to them if they want to if they want to publish them then we have a different conversation about how that, you know, in other words, publish it for retail sales. But most mm-hmm. of them type them up. Uh, they can take them to one of the, you know, print stores and get them uh, copies made. They can even get a decent co- cover, all kind of different covers on them. Or they can go online and hire somebody to design a cover, and it's still they can put it together and give their families. It still isn't in the public. So um, that's how I got fascinated with this. And um, I was especially drawn to it because I know how difficult it is to sit down by yourself and start writing your story. It is, it's just difficult because you don't know where to start. And I even, uh, my oldest daughter gave me a book uh, a couple of years before I retired, that was designed to help you write your autobiography. That's what that author, this was not the same man who created the method, but this was like a, sort of like a journal, and each page was asked a question, and you fill in that information, and the, the idea being at the, when you get this book complete, you could give it to your family as is, or you could, you know, copy those, type them up, and so forth. But even as much writing experience, as much teaching experience as I had, I found it difficult because you had these questions that were, of course, about my life and or about life, but they just seemed random to sit and do that. And without a group to share it with, it, it made it uh, not easy to stick to a schedule and to get it done. So um, I when I found this method, I realized that this is a solution for all those people who want to write their stories, but they need guidance. They need confidence. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience. 
Oh, I'm so sure. And I, I want to ask you a health question since you are in California uh, because you were talking about memoirs and if you're it, during this time when people have so much uncertainty and with all mm-hmm. of the toilet, initially when all of the toilet paper was missing, uh, you could see in other aisles where all the vegetables were still stacked and all the vitamins were still That's right. stacked. That's so right. <laughs> could they use the toilet paper that they bought? <laughs> <laughs> Could they eat the toilet paper? Uh, well, you know what? Um, I I wrote an article. I wrote a couple of articles about um, about family, but I definitely wrote one during the pandemic. That's uh, it's on my uh, website in my blog. I don't know exactly why people went for the toilet paper, but I think it was something about. You know, they identified that with uh, a need. And, of course, people were stocking up the uh, sanitizer. Mm-hmm. And um, what else was that? Those cleaning products, cleaning products and um, sanitizers, toilet tissue. It was a thing. And I'm sure uh, psychologists could, you know, delve into it and try to explain why it was that. But you're right. And maybe the the fresh vegetables and fruits kind of thing um, was something that they weren't thinking immediately about because it's perishable. So they were buying things that weren't perishable and it would keep them physically uh, safe. But you'll have to read my article about uh, the, I wrote an article about ways to find relief, comfort, and meaning during the pandemic. But I started off talking about the very thing we're talking about now is the, the panic buying. People want to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And having lots of toilet paper and um, whatever canned goods and things of that nature made them feel safe and ready for, because we didn't know if we were going to be uh, locked down to the extent that we could not make the choice of going out of our houses or what, we didn't know. And um, I have a picture in here of one of, of course, everybody has a picture in their head that they didn't take a picture of the grocery stores. It was shocking and it was scary to walk in a store. If you live in a city like I do, I have three major grocery stores near me within a, um, one is in five blocks and one was a couple of miles. And those stores are always stopped, you know, and to walk in there, and see empty shelves for as long as you can see down that whole aisle, or maybe one bottle of something sitting on that shelf. It, that was a new and scary thing for us. <laughs> so it was, yeah, but it's something that people just, they feel like they have to do something. They have to run and hide. Of course, now you also had the uh, fast-thinking entrepreneurs. So yeah. there were people buying toilet tissue and um, sanitizers, hand sanitizers and cleaning products um, and stocking up to, you know, sell people. I guess yeah. I don't know where they were going to sell them. Maybe at the swap meets on Saturdays or whatever. But then the stores had to make a quick adjustment because they weren't prepared for this. So they started saying uh, no returns on mm-hmm. toilet tissue and hand sanitizers. So, if your garage is filled with hand sanitizers <laughs> and you didn't sell them, uh, you cannot take them back to the store. 
Um, so everybody had to pivot and decide what they were going to do. But after a while, you know, it settled into kind of a a thing. But it we kept, I don't know, well, I think it's kind of across the country in America. We had to pivot again because the very day I released my course to make it available for sale was the 25th of May. Mm. And you know what day that was. Mm. That was the day that George... Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm. And I say murdered, some people said died, but he's gone from us. And we got to see a piece of it. We didn't see all of what happened, but that changed people's um, uh, feelings and it added more fear to mm-hmm. our lives because especially people of color, we already know the story about how vulnerable our our uh, black males in particular are, but we know from our experiences, you know, what it's like to be uh, black and and being possibly accused of something at any time. So that added more. So of course I had to add, <laughs> I had to add some content in my journal that I created for my students uh, about that too, about the protesting and the social unrest. And I even uh, found some um, articles that, you know, weren't in my course before that pertain to systemic racism and the history of um, eugenics and those kind of things. I added those in the course. Uh, None of that is mandatory reading, but it's reading that they can do and we can discuss to help trigger their memories and their feelings about all these things. So my course (laughs) became... Uh, different from what it would have been, you know, had these things not happened. Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions that are packed into that. Uh, I don't know where to start. I do want to cover the <laughs> eugenics part and, and it being uh, not being mandatory, but from a historic, I want to put a pin on that one. Um, okay. You, you were talking about uh, some people were uh, hiding under the bed until everything is over. And so... <laughs> Uh, it, it's really interesting in the states that because I want to get your opinion on this. Uh, in March, right, the general consensus was, oh, it's going to be over around Easter, which was I guess four weeks away. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. They kept pushing it back like six weeks and a month. And so when our family reunion was canceled, I was still doing some. I mean, it's addictive, right? Kind of finding all these long lost <laughs> ancestors. And so I was speaking mm-hmm. to a cousin that was like third degree removed and we were having a chat and, and we were talking about the family reunion and on their mm-hmm. side, it was also canceled. It was supposed to be this year, but they decided our, so our family reunion has been postponed, God willing until next year. Right. And mm-hmm. with her, this particular person, they said, well, we're going to wait until 2022 to have our family reunion because when influenza hit in 1918, it roughly lasted two years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when you were talking about eugenics and knowing the history, uh, history seems to repeat itself in certain ways. And if you don't know your history, you're going to repeat it. And I guess that's right. It it gives you, it keeps you in employment because, if you're not writing that life story, 
because when when you talk about the eugenics, uh, I know that WB Du Bois and those guys they they kind of subscribe to that too. So mm-hmm. it, it's important to read these life stories because there could be a narrative that you know only one group of people thought this, and you know look at those people, but oh wow, somebody in our family, Uncle Joe, really thought that way. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess the bigger question is how big is an eraser in your class? Because what I'm writing down today may not be applicable tomorrow, or I may feel differently about it tomorrow. Now, what do you mean? How big is an eraser in the class? Well, you mean I, I was, terms thinking, of... I was thinking with um, when we talk with our elders, like one of the popular things for family reunions is get the matriarch, get the patriarch and film them and ask them questions and get it on on tape because they are not used to writing it down but they have the luxury of looking at their whole life and they can package and compartmentalize it that way Mm because they lived it but when you're in the middle of it you may think about something different today than you would a year from now so is it it seems like a work in progress that incorporates a lot of erasing it is, but not you don't necessarily erase, erase it, because if I talk about how I felt about life when I was a teenager, I can't erase that. That's the way I felt about life when I was a teenager. And then when I got married, had my children, I may have changed my mind about some things. It's just like growing up in a certain um, religion. Your parents, you know, raise you as a whatever, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic. But as you grow and evolve, you may uh, explore other religions, other ways of thinking, expand your spirituality. You don't go back and erase your uh, Baptist upbringing. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) But I have expanded my spirituality as an adult and as a, a mom and all that. So all of that is still part of your story. Mm-hmm. So no, you don't erase it. Um, even your the, the way you felt about events that were going on or the information you had about events at a given time may change as you get more information. But you mm-hmm. still can share how you were feeling and what you thought before and what has made you change your mind. I think that's very useful information. You know, if you say, you know, I was uh, a Baptist and um, when I became an adult, I became a whatever. I think that's very useful for people to read what made you change, what things uh, led you to even seek a change, and then what elements of this new thing, this new religion, spirituality, made you change. And, um, you know, what are the differences in the features and the this and that? Because my thinking as a parent and as a teacher is to expose you to a wide variety of information, and then you make up your mind. Mm -hmm. I have four children, and each one of them (laughs) has a little different approach to um, their spirituality choices. But that's okay, because they are adults. I expose them to a wide variety of things. It's like exposing your uh, child to classical music, but they may choose to uh, move into hip-hop when they become or make their living even from hip-hop, and that's completely fine. So, no, you don't erase. You keep all that information because it it shows 
development and progress and how you evolved. That's very important to find out. And, you know, the Bible is full of stories about, you know, people changing and having their, uh, you know, their road to Damascus experience, I think. So we need to know both. We need to know the progress and the changes over time. So, no, we don't want to erase any of that. But um, things like um, the anti-racism uh, resources, the uh, some were articles, some were YouTube um, videos. Um, those were very, uh, many of the students said, thank you so much for including that in the in this course. Even if they didn't um, address it directly in their stories, they were just, um, you know, overwhelmed with, over, just blown away by what happened historically. And that was, you know, I wasn't trying to give them a thorough education about all these things because I'm just learning about many of these too. But it did expand because there, once the social protesting started, there were many white people who were asking us <laughs> to help them understand what is, what, how we feel, what is going on, and what things are appropriate for them to do. Because many of them started to worry that they were being um, disrespectful because they didn't know what was the right thing to say or not say, you know? They, they didn't realize because they're in their heads and their bodies and their life experiences and we're in ours. And, um, so many people were very pleased and, you know, told me, I'm so glad you included those things in our, and some of those were very hard to watch. Um, but like I say, I gave them, they had set exercises that they had to do. And then they had to choose from one of like 14 prompts on a given theme, although they could always create their own uh, prompt. But the other things that they were reading were to give them context, background, give them a glimpse into what other groups have been through historically to help them understand why we are where we are today. Because many people think that <laughs> uh, one of my um, coworkers one day asked me, uh, said something to me like, what are black people going to stop talking about slavery? That's been over a couple of hundred years. And I said, well, I guess when other groups stop talking about their history, mm-hmm. that's when we'll stop. That's our history. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, a lot of us don't know it. Um, it. And it's really a big shame because there's a lot of value in knowing <laughs> what your people have been through. But it wasn't common knowledge. I, I mean, even the uh, American story for white people is not very, or very well told and very deep because the textbooks are uh, profit uh, organization, textbook publishers. And they write what they think school districts will buy. Mm-hmm. And uh, school districts buy what they think the parents will tolerate. Mm-hmm. And if that if they worry about the parents not being uh, receptive, then they've got 
you know, to address it. So they tiptoe around. Everybody tiptoes around this. And um, children who learn their history in childhood are blessed because probably their parents had what the Jewish kids have, Saturday school. They go to school on Saturdays. And some private families have had, um, um, you know, lessons at home. You know, just like some homes have Bible study. There are some families that teach their children about their history. Unfortunately, if it's not being taught on a grand scale, when we're young, we tend to not take that very seriously. We're just interested in here and now, you know, when we're young. But, um, yeah, it's very important to have access to those, um, to the history. And because of what has happened now the uh, guided autobiography facilitators around the world who you know have the training like i have um, no surprise the majority of the teachers are white in this uh, group but there was no discrimination against you know anybody could sign up for the training but many didn't of other races now that organization is really clamoring to see how they could be more responsive and what kind of things do they need to change about even how they're recruiting. And they're not actively recruiting like, because they're not a profit organization. So they haven't been out actively recruiting. People just tend to find them just like I found them by you know browsing through a community services catalog. But now they are having that conversation and um, wanting to know, you know, have, you know, have we been, I mean, a lot of white people know, have we been complicit in all of this because we didn't know this and now we know we're learning, what can we do? And uh, there's a lot of good articles about that out there for them, what, what they need to do. But uh, yeah, no, forget that eraser. And uh, even be <laughs> and be careful about what you delete. You know, when you're uh, writing, you can write different versions. You know, of your story, unless for some reason, you know, you have a date mixed up or whatever. You can save the old version as you edit and come up with the one that's going to be the final one. There, there, you're not going to get all of your facts in, or all of your feelings and all that you want to say in one memoir. Or in one story. That's why some people write three, four, and more memoirs. Because typically a memoir is a slice. If you think about a pizza, let's say with 12 slices, that whole pizza is like your autobiography. But one slice out of that pizza is a memoir because it takes a part of your life. Typically, you pick some part of your life. Let's say your um, your childhood. And you write about that, or it can be even narrower about something very specific about your childhood. And that can fill the whole book, because remember, your book length, your story length is up to you. So we're not talking about writing war and peace. We're talking about writing on, on whatever theme you're on until you have satisfied yourself and feel that you have said all that you want to say about that at that time. But you can turn around and write another memoir on some other aspect of your life. And that's kind of where themes that we cover in our class are the typical themes that 
run through everyone's life. Mm-hmm. And the, the other part of that that I want to ask you, since you said you can have so many different parts of your book, uh, what should you particularly include in an autobiography or memoir or life story? It makes me think of a couple of years ago I had dabbled into comedy, and I, I was doing stand-up around the city and what have you. Oh. And it, it was great. I, I loved it. It helped me just for sales, just being in front of a lot of people uh, and getting over that fear. But I did notice in my dating life that people were kind of hesitant to share themselves because they thought I would use <laughs> what I was going through on stage. And so when I asked, which you should include for your autobiography, I, I was looking at your site and I was thinking about um, the holidays because mm-hmm. uh, just from a genealogy standpoint, uh, you know, everyone's like, yeah, we're family, we're family. But when you start breaking it down and you find half-sisters or stepsisters and stepbrothers <laughs> and all this, it's not clean anymore. And, and people find out that you're writing this autobiography and they're like, oh, we can't say anything around this person because you're going to include it in the book. So That's are right. you are you having two books? Like one is the public book and then the other one is a posthumous book? <laughs> I suppose that's a possibility. My theory is, and I mean, I think other um, people who teach about writing memoirs would agree, your story is your story. And as long as you keep it on your story, and I think one of the problems people get into when they talk, because other people are part of your story, right? There's no way I can talk about my growing up without my mother and my father and my sisters being involved. But the point is, if I'm writing about my feelings, how I felt about what happened, that's all I'm responsible for, and that's all I really know. It's not my job to say why my sister had the relationship she had with my mother or why she did something she did because I'm not in her head. I wasn't in her head. I don't know. So my responsibility is to tell my side of it. Now, what's going to happen is this is where people get into trouble. When they write a revenge memoir, when you have someone that you hate it for whatever reason, you hold them responsible for everything that happened or didn't happen in your life. Um, they want to then, you know, bash this person, and it just becomes a mean and hateful thing. That's not the purpose of the memoir. Mm. But the other side of it is, no matter what you do, if I tell my life story and I, I decide, okay, I'm not going to name people by name. I'm just going to say a friend or a cousin or whatever. Everybody that grew up with me knows who that, those people are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can try to mask it with, because uh, people do worry about that. Students, you know, they want to give it a pseudonym, give them a um, fictitious name. But people who grew up with you, and nowadays in social media, my goodness, there's so mm-hmm. much about your life online. People just have to sign up and become your Facebook friend, your Instagram friend, your, your follower, all of these things to really learn about you because people don't realize how much they're disclosing. But you can't worry about what other, how your family's going to feel because, or your friends. They may be afraid of talking to you and you 
you can decide as a stand-up comedian, for example, that you're going to steer clear of those, but that's your rich content, <laughs> I imagine, to mm-hmm. share your your relationships with your friends and family. And um, those who want to stop talking to you, oh, well. Uh, the mm-hmm. one thing I told one of my friends who um, was from a big family and her father was uh, famous, and her one of her sisters wrote um, family, I, I don't know if she called it a, an autobiography or a memoir or whatever, but uh, my friend said that the family was upset when she published her book, this, this one sister. Mm-hmm. And because they didn't agree with the way she portrayed her father and her mother. And so I said to her, well, then you know what? You get to write your book. And you get to portray people the way you saw them. But you can't get upset with someone else for portraying the way they saw things. And, and you know, the exception is, you know, if someone is intentionally writing the whole thing to attack and, you know, get revenge on this person. But, uh, yeah, each person is entitled to write their own version. So you don't like my version? Guess what? It is so easy to write your own book these days. Even to get it published, you can get it up on Amazon within 72 hours of submitting it to them. And um, write your own. There's no way that we're going to all agree on our experiences. Even though we were in the same family, (laughs) we had different approaches. So, yeah, people might have been worried, but you tell them that you should be worried because I am going to share my perspective on things. But, you know, as long as you're not doing it, like I say, to get revenge or to be mean or to attack and belittle people just for the joy of getting, you know, paying them back kind of thing. I think that's that's the the, kind of the line. Well, I'm also thinking, um, not being ageist, right? But if, if this is our best time because we can only live in the present, and when you're talking about social media and what have you, from a generational standpoint, uh, there were generations before us that didn't share that information, right? Exactly. And so from, I always, I like to look at it like a two-year-old because a two-year-old's always like, why, 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 why? Exactly, right? and, yeah. And with older generations, you get little pieces, and that's only after someone passes away. And yeah. so they're like, well, I didn't have all this information. And somebody was like, well, why didn't you ask? And then the other side is probably protecting. Like they're probably protecting a family member because they didn't want to share that. Right. <laughs> to find out right. at like 30, like, oh, my God, my whole life was a lie. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's kind um, of it's a, scary. Is it, but is it easier now working with clients because they are so more, like you said, all you have to do is follow someone. People are sharing so much information. <laughs> they share too much information. <laughs> but I don't have my grandma showing her what she ate for lunch today on her social media. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on who your grandma is because some grandmas are pretty savvy. I'm a great grandma. And, um, I go. I was online with my youngest daughter's friends watching Hamilton the other night. Um, I had seen it. Uh, my I watched it by myself, and then I was watching it again because I was going to be going to a chat 
who we're going to discuss it. So I watched it with a, a bunch of 39-year-olds, and they were all, I guess, late 30s. And it was very different watching it with them than mm-hmm. watching it with somebody my age or watching it by myself because they have perspectives. But I love hearing those perspectives. I love hearing, mm-hmm. you know, how they uh, see something very different in it than, than I see and than I saw. And um, it, it, there are more grandparents and great-grands and all on social media than you think. <laughs> so, um, but back to your thing about them not sharing. I, when my, my mother was kind of the keeper of the family history, quote unquote, but she wasn't writing it down in the sense of what we're talking about now. When I got ready to try to create my first genealogy chart, I did not own a computer back there then. And I, um, just decided, okay, I've got to create some kind of worksheet to start getting these people to send me information. And so I started gathering information from the heads of households and I made this chart. Well, I knew that my mother had been married uh, before she married my father, been married once before she married my father. So, and she had a picture of this uh, man that she'd been married to a short time and his name on the back. It was his nickname too. So I was like, um, mother, tell me about this uh, guy you said you were married to and blah, blah, blah. What was his real name, blah, 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 because I need to put that on the chart. Oh, my goodness. Having been, she was very forthcoming before this with all the names and stuff. But when I dug into that, she said, oh, don't, he doesn't need to go on the chart. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, he does, because you said you married him, so he, he is your first husband. Mm-hmm. Well, we were just married a very short period of time, so that doesn't need to be on the chart. That's not important. I said, it is very important. I said, <laughs> I tried to appeal to her understanding of money. I said, suppose this man <laughs> died, and they're looking for his last wife, no matter how many years have passed. <laughs> and um, you haven't identified with him in any way, shape, or form. You're just going to miss out on that money that you were going to get. And she was like, well, I don't care about that. I don't think his oh. name needs to be on there. It's not important. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. So, and I had another cousin that called me, and she was upset. And we're talking about just identifying who's kin to who, okay? Yes, yes. We're not even talking about the stories that whatever went on, (laughs) but one cousin called me and said, I want, um, I received this information and you have my, um, you have my uh, father listed as uh, a stepchild that he was, you know, raised as step. I said, well, that's not true. They treated him just like a family member. They loved Mm -hmm. him all his life. I don't think you should have it you know, listed as stepchild. Well, mm-hmm. I had it listed that way because I didn't really have the official um, doc, the um, software yet of how mm-hmm. to say these things and how to show the relationship. She was so upset, and I said, listen, I am sharing information that other people shared with me. Whether you were a stepchild or not is no reflection on you. It's a relationship so that we can understand those of us who didn't know or, you know, will be left behind. Mm -hmm. She goes on. She goes, well, my husband and I don't have any children. 
And so we don't really need to even be on the, uh, she did not want her father listed as a stepfather because the parents had raised him and had been wonderful to him. Well, that's great. She also probably didn't want me to know that that was her stepfather. Right. That wasn't her birth father. And how did I know? Because one of the other cousins told me the story that she remembers that she was at the wedding of this, um, my the other cousin's uh, mother and father. And they were about 10 or 11 years old. And she described what they were wearing and the porch. They got out on the porch and got married, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And um, she maybe she didn't know that I knew that, too. But she was so upset. She said, well, just take me off the family uh, tree. And mm-hmm. I said, well, you know what? Uh, we're not taking anybody off the family tree. I said, if you don't want a copy of it, um, fine. I said, but the, we have a responsibility whoever's creating that chart to tell the true connections to the best of my ability. I said, the only way I will have lies and falsehoods on that uh, chart will be that somebody told me a lie. You know, so many people love their stepmother, stepfather, you know, because they raised them and they just, you know, would love to have them, that be their blood parents. But they're not, and that's okay. But they don't want it written down anywhere. So she and I didn't have much, many more conversations. But, yeah, she was pretty upset. And um, that's part of the problem when you start talking, showing true relations. And even even more amazing is when you go to a funeral and you read the um, obituary on the funeral program, and at the end, you know how they say uh, she she leaves to mourn her this and you know her five children blah 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 and you go five I mm-hmm. thought she only had four children who who is this yes. Charlotte on here <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's like oh so you're gonna acknowledge them on the funeral program but nobody knew before this so that they could not that she's necessarily gonna force a relationship with the the person. But it happens, and they're here. They were born. They typically are adults by now, you know. So it it gets very tricky, and you're going to have some upset relatives when you start talking real relationships. That's not even getting to the story yet, which is talking about the tree. But that right. tree has a lot of interesting leaves on it, okay? And you start yeah. shaking that tree, and... It's really scary when you have people you were very close to that you grew up with, and you know what happened, and at least you know the timelines. And um, they have reordered, you talk about Eraser, they've reordered the history in their heads, and they convinced themselves that, no, this this is her father or whatever. That was before DNA um, testing became... <laughs> Easy to do, easier to do. But, yeah, there's a lot of um, potential minefields when you start this. But that's why you keep the focus on you when you're writing your story, how you felt about a given situation. And um, it's in the kindest way you can. But the, the danger of not sharing your true story is it's not forgotten. It's in you. And you're carrying unnecessary weight. And, and pain and suffering inside of you. When you share that, 
you have released that. Uh, you, many of us are probably sharing blame for something that we didn't really do or weren't responsible for. When you expose it, there's, I think Brene Brown wrote something like, um, um, shame uh, cannot survive in the light. Mm-hmm. So when you share something that you feel shameful about or whatever, it, it um, weakens it. It doesn't make the incident go away, but it weakens that emotion that was holding you captive all these years. So a part of what you're doing in writing your story is getting it out of you so it's no longer controlling or diminishing your life because that's exactly exactly what it's doing, even when you don't realize it. Absolutely. So what we've established is everyone has a story in them. How do they start? How do they know they're on the right path? I think that they need an autobiography facilitator. And so how would they get in touch with you? (laughs) How would they get in touch with you to get that process going? And also just to to read that book, The Color Your Life Happy, Create Your Unique Path and Claim the Joy You Deserve. So how could people get that book and, and find more about you? Okay. Um, the uh, book, by the way, was written, the second edition was written in 2015, so it was written before I even started teaching the um, guided autobiography classes. But they can get my book on Amazon. What I recommend is to go to my author page if you want to see all the books. I've written about 13 books for the trade. Uh, you can see all of my books there. Or you can go directly to Amazon and type in my name, Flora Morris Brown, which is probably the best way to type it in. But uh, there is an author page that you go to that each author who wants to sets up. And mine is Amazon.com forward slash author forward slash Flora Brown. And that page will show you all of the books that I've written, and it will have some other a biography and other information, and you just click on the book, the particular book that you want to buy or you want to learn more about, and it'll take you then to the sales page of just that book. Oh, and okay. uh, so the Color Your Life Happy is available as a print book and as a um, an ebook, and I had it um, uh, also as an audio book until recently. I decided to redo the audio because I I hired a narrator before, which was fine, but I decided that I was going to read my own story. At first, I didn't want to read the book because it's a long process making a good audio book, but I decided that now that I'm into storytelling and the importance of stories, that reading my happiness book myself would be an additional um, benefit and treasure for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to have not only the print book, but have my voice hearing me read my own book. And so I'm going to be doing that this year, and it will be available. As far as the life stories or anything else I'm doing, my main website is my name, florabrown.com. And when you go there, you can pick off from there to other things. Um, you know, looking along the navigation bar there at the top, uh, there's information there about all the various things I do. And I urge all of the listeners to get, if you're interested, 
understand life stories at all, when you go to my website, I uh, ask you to just ask for the free download. I wrote an ebook called Seven Reasons You Have Trouble Writing Your Life Story. And they can download that and read about um, what those seven uh, problems are that people have. We've been talking about them today. But what are some of those problems and what's the difference between autobiography and, and memoir and the kind of life stories we do and so on and so forth. So that free download is a very valuable starting point. And then from there, they have my um, all of my contact information they'll have on that on my homepage. If they want to contact me on Facebook, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on, um, <laughs> what's that, that very funny on Twitter? <laughs> and, um, then, <laughs> I know what, what happened. I don't know. Um, and then any of the social media, the common ones, I'm even on LinkedIn. I don't post there as much as I used to anymore. But uh, Facebook and Twitter for sure. I have a YouTube channel that I haven't added to lately. Got to get back to that. Uh, when you're on my website, floorabrown.com, if you go to blog and click, click that, you'll see a lot of the, um, all the blogs that I've put there. All the blogs I've written aren't there. I've been kind of selective because I've been writing blogs since 2008. But one of the main ones that I think you would be interested in and some of your listeners is in February, I wrote a blog a day about, uh, I'm going to say famous, but maybe not well-known uh, African-Americans for Black History Month. So okay. Black History Month was 29 days this year. So there are 29 different articles, each one spotlighting a, an African-American who contributed to our history in different ways. And I spent a lot of time researching to pull out the key information about them. And you'll see photographs and a lot of information. Some places I've had links. If possible, I'll have a link to them speaking or singing or whatever that they did. So that's over there on uh, my blog. I think you would enjoy that. But I also have articles about the life stories and why they're important and so forth. So floorbrown.com is kind of a good place to start to get to all of these things. Fantastic. And I'll definitely check out that uh, month of February. That's, that's right up my alley. So. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> Yeah, so with that, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, Dr. Flora Morris-Brown. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Let's definitely stay in touch. Thank you so very much for having me. It was a fun experience. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.